So it was uh, while gone, I think uh, Chris Gorman preached one of the weeks, and then Bobby Gaither uh, preached, and so it's just good having, uh, I love that Chris is here, and he's able to preach, and of course this week, I think South Dakota, he's all over the country all the time, Uh, but God has certainly blessed us with Chris, and then Bobby, uh, many of you, especially guys, you already knew uh, through Man Camp, and then now many more of you know being here, he was here last week, he and I do a podcast together called Satisfied in Christ, Uh, but he is just a guy who loves Jesus. And so uh, it is good. I think when I came back, I've heard many, many positive comments about him. Uh, and he's just a fun, fun guy. And so we can continue to pray for him and his church. Uh, again, mostly next week, we'll all be on the, kind of the focus of what happened in India and Thailand. It was just a lot to try to put all that together for this week and think through how we're going to present it. Uh, so I will tell you, come back tonight for prayer meeting because we'll talk a little bit more there, uh, but mostly next week. Uh, Today, though, we're just going to jump back into the Apostles' Creed. Uh, We've been making our way through the Apostles' Creed for several weeks. Uh, The Apostles' Creed was a creed that was put together early um, in church history for the purpose of teaching people the essentials of the faith. It's a summary of the gospel account. One author said, it's not everything that we believe, but it is pretty much the minimum in which we believe. Now, it is not inspired like the Holy Scriptures. Uh, God has used His Holy Spirit through, uh, through the last uh, two, 200 years through the last 20 centuries, uh, last 2,000 years, uh, for the purpose of strengthening the church, for the purpose of guarding the church. And so his spirit has worked through the church that they would establish these creeds and these documents as a means to remain faithful. And so it is important that we do know the creeds uh, and, and how they came about. It's important that we know church history. I know for me, and I know probably some of you, uh, I have thought in the past how much does it really matter? You know, I mean, shouldn't we just read the Bible? That's really what we need to know. This is inspired. These aren't. Let's just get to the meat of everything. But we must realize that Jesus gave the Spirit for the purpose of leading the church into truth. And as heresies have come up, and as problems have plagued the church, they created these documents uh, to stand firm. They created these documents to teach, and we can benefit greatly from them today. Uh, So it is good that we understand them and know them. Now when we come to the Apostles' Creed, we see that there's a Trinitarian shape to it. It begins with, I believe in the Father. It it, it ends with our belief in the Holy Spirit. And in between is this large section that talks about our belief in Jesus Christ. In fact, when when you map it out, there's like 10 lines given to Jesus Christ. So the bulk of the Creed is focused on who Jesus is, what He has done for us, and today we're primarily focusing on his death and his resurrection. And so I'm going to read the part of the creed that we're going to focus on, and then we will uh, come to the text. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, and so if you want to go ahead and have your Bibles there. So here's the part of the creed that we're going to look at, and this is where it talks about our belief in Jesus, and it's that Jesus has suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. I called Ben this morning. I was talking to him before he was heading up to University Place. And I said, man, this could have been our Easter message. Like, this is, this is the gospel in a nutshell. That's what we're looking at today. And so far as we've kind of worked through the Apostles' Creed, uh, we've been able to just kind of hang in one passage. And we're going to be able to do that today in the book of Acts uh, in, in our passage that we're going to look at, it pretty much encapsulates everything that's in this statement uh, that we're looking at today. And so, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand as we read Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 33. And if you notice, Rich didn't have us stand today in the Apostles' Creed, and the, the reason for that was... We stand for the Word of God. And so we just wanted to make a distinction visually um, while we, while we um, 
acknowledge the, the Apostles' Creed, while we, while we love the Creed, while it's good and truthful, it is not inspired and it does not come with the authority that this Word does. And so that is why we remain seated then and is why we stand now. So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. And this is going to be Peter speaking, and this is kind of the very beginning, the birth of the church here. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let's pray this morning. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word that you have given it to us. We thank you that it is inspired, it is inerrant, and it is infallible. And it is given to us for the purpose of equipping, for strengthening, for correcting, for rebuking, that we would be trained in righteousness. And Lord, as we look at your word today and we are reminded of the gospel, the fact that your son Jesus has come to earth as a man, suffered, died, buried, and rose. God, I pray that our hearts would be full of joy. I pray that we would grow in our love and our fervor and our zeal for the gospel this morning. I pray that this text would take on new meaning for us today, that our hearts would be made fresh because of this truth here today, that we would not take for granted the gospel, that we would not grow um, callous towards it, but that, God, our hearts would be strengthened. And, God, may we know that there are brothers and sisters, not only here in Washington, in America, but throughout the world, that are gathered today because of this truth. Your Son came, died, buried, and rose. And may we see that truth. May we rejoice in it this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So I'll probably put my hands in my pockets a lot, because apparently that's what Bobby does, and told you guys all about it. You know, you're never supposed to say the things that you do, because uh, then everyone counts them. So the Holy Spirit has just descended upon the church. Jesus has now risen. Uh, he's now gone to the Father. This is all after the resurrection. There's been 120 people gathered in a room The Holy Spirit has now come upon this gathering of believers and upon the Spirit coming upon them. They go out into the city and they begin proclaiming the gospel. And the crazy thing is, when you read Acts chapter 2, they are speaking the gospel in the native language of all those people around them. And so what we have in, in Genesis 11, which is where we have the Tower of Babel, we have All of the nations are being divided because of not having the same language. And then in Revelation chapter 7, at the end of the book, so the bookends of the Bible, we then have all the nations, all the tribes, all the tongues, all the different languages are gathered around the throne with the purpose of worshiping God. 
So what happens from Genesis 11 to Revelation 7? From we've gone to division because of difference of language to unity in, in language. And what we have is it's the gospel. And here in chapter 2 of Acts, we have, as the gospel is now being proclaimed, people of different languages are hearing it, and they are going to believe, becoming part of the very body of Christ. And so the people, though, as they hear this, many of them are, are pretty dumbfounded at how these people are speaking in all these different languages. And so one guy says, are they drunk? And so Peter, of course, he's the bold one, so he stands up and he's going to address the issue. And so he comes forth and he says, no, they're not drunk. And he first, before we get to our text, he quotes from the book of Joel. And in the book of Joel, it talks about a day coming when the Spirit will descend upon all people and they will all speak and proclaim the gospel. And so that's how he's explaining what's happening. And then... He comes to the part that we're in today. And so he says, the reason we're doing this is because the Holy Spirit has come upon us. Now he wants to go back a little further, and he's now going to say, and the reason the Holy Spirit has come upon us is because Jesus came, died, and rose again, which is what we're looking at today. And so he is going to be focusing on the crucifixion, the death, the burial, in the resurrection of Jesus. And, and as I said before, uh, I, I first thought like we were going to be kind of all over the place as we were looking at the truths in this part of the creed. Um, but this text really kind of encapsulates everything that the creed says. And so we're going to uh, focus primarily here in chapter 2. And the first thing we see is that the death and resurrection of Jesus has always been the very plan of God. If you look in verse 22, it says that Jesus is a man attested by God. Now the word attested means to put forth or to display. So God has put Jesus forth to do what we're told mighty wonders and signs. And so Jesus healing the blind, making the lame to walk, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, uh, turning the water into wine, which is what Bobby preached on last week. All these are miracles that were part of God's plan, that God had ordained, had determined that Jesus would do to reveal the glory of God, the power of God, the saving power of God. And then in verse 23, what we realize is the crucifixion is also a part of the plan of God. In fact, we read that it is according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Now, the word foreknowledge refers to predetermined. And the word's definite plan refers to God's determined purpose. So we're looking at something that God, in the past, has determined to do. And so what Peter is wanting us to understand is that Jesus coming, dying on the cross, was not some chaotic event. Jesus did not die because God lost control. This text is affirming a truth that we see all in, in all of Scripture, that our God is in charge of every moment and every event in all of history. The crucifixion of Jesus has always been a part of God's definite plan, even before creation. And so, um, in fact, we'll look at a few texts in just a moment. But there's some people, when they hear about the cross of Jesus, they say, no. I'm not going to believe in Christianity. I would not believe in a God who would allow his son to be crucified or who would will for his son to be crucified. Um, have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard maybe that statement? Maybe you've read that statement uh, before. The people that say that, though, they don't just misunderstand the cross. So it's not helpful to answer their their question there, their objection, which is going straight to the cross. Because what they don't understand is really the entire Bible. They don't understand the flow of what God is doing. They're not understanding that God created a people, or that God created the earth and everything in it with the purpose of creating a people who would live with Him and enjoy Him forever. But because of sin, we're separated from God. We know that. We know the story. It goes all the way back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And so, because we're separated because of sin, 
God doesn't just throw all of creation away and start over, but He unleashes a redemption plan. A plan to somehow bring unholy people now into His presence. But in order to bring unholy people into the holy presence of God, He must make us holy. He has to transform us. We must be saved. Our sin has to be dealt with. And so in order for that to happen, that's what The cross is. The cross is the means in which God has chosen to create a people who will live with Him, who will enjoy Him, and who will praise Him for all of eternity. And so I just want to walk through a few texts that just begin to show this. This is God's plan from the beginning. Genesis 3.15. This is the very first look that we have at the gospel. This is after Adam and Eve have sinned. God comes to the garden and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so what God is saying is the seed from the woman will crush the head of the serpent, which is what Jesus does at the cross, but the serpent will crush the heel, meaning there will be suffering. The the Messiah dies, but he rises again that's why it's of the heel it's not a crushing like jesus does on the head of the serpent which destroys him in fact then we come to the book of ephesians ephesians goes back even before genesis does because ephesians tells us what happened before creation and here we have blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us with christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and here it is even as He chose us in Him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. So here Ephesians is saying, look, before He created, God had determined that through the Son at the cross that He would create a holy people. We could look at the entire sacrificial system. We could spend time in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and look at what we learn about the sacrificial system. Uh, but the book of Hebrews, especially in chapters 9 and 10 in the New Testament, shows how the entire sacrificial system moves and points towards Jesus Christ. In fact, what we're told in Hebrews is Jesus is the greater priest and the greater sacrifice. So we have all these priests and all the sacrificial system Ultimately, what that moves us towards and points us towards is to Jesus as the perfect priest who offers his body as the perfect sacrifice. Isaiah 55, or 53, verses 5 and 10. This is what it says. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his own wounds we were healed. So this is talking about one day this suffering servant is going to come. He's going to be pierced not for his transgressions but for ours and whose will is this that this happens verse 10 yet it was the will of the lord to crush him he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days the will of the lord shall prosper in his hand Throughout the Old Testament, we see these glimpses of one day there's going to be one who stands on behalf of God's people to suffer and die for them so they could be forgiven. It's at the cross that our sin is dealt with. And the reason it must be dealt with there is because we cannot pay for it. Some people say, well, why does hell have to be eternal? We, when you offend an infinite God, the consequence, the punishment is infinite. And that's why hell lasts forever. And why His wrath is unable to be satisfied by you and me. But Jesus, on our behalf, a perfect and blameless Lamb, goes before us that He would take the wrath of God. That's what we have when we come to the cross. In fact, Jesus, when He comes in Luke chapter 24, so after He's risen from the cross, or from the grave, uh, and he's on a road. He meets two guys on this road to Emmaus. Many of you guys know the story. And these guys are, are wrestling. Man, what has happened? I thought Jesus was the Messiah. I thought he was going to be king. Now, now we don't know anything. And so Jesus, in Luke 24, 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What, what we learn there is that Jesus comes to these guys and says, Guys, the entire Old Testament was pointing towards this. 
Let me walk you through the Old Testament. Wouldn't that have been cool to like hear that story of the Old Testament? Like, let me give you the right application of the Old Testament and how it perfectly leads to Jesus. In fact, in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3, verse 24, Peter and John are arrested. They appear before these, uh, this, the, the Pharisees, and, and they say this, And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. They're giving a defense of the gospel, and they're saying, look, Guys, all the prophets, everything in the Old Testament prophesied that one day Jesus would come. He would die and he would rise again from the grave. So what this tells us is when we read the Bible, so here on a Sunday morning or when you're at home, when you're reading the Bible on Monday or Tuesday and each day that you're there, we need to read the Bible in such a way that it points us towards Jesus. We have to see that. When you're going in the Old Testament and you're wrestling through, okay, why is there this sacrificial system? What is happening here with these kings? Why do they keep being these wicked kings? We need a better king. How does this lead us towards Jesus? How does the text that we're in show us our need for a Savior? How does it show us our sin? How does it show us God's love in providing a perfect sacrifice for us? And so when you're reading That's how you need to be looking at the Old Testament. When you're in the New Testament, you need to see how does this, uh, when Paul gives us commands, how is it now that we love because of what Jesus has done for us? The reason we love is because Jesus has died on the cross for us, made us new, given us his spirit, so that now we would love like him. So whatever we're at, whether we're in the Old Testament, New Testament, we need to look at what has God done for us in Jesus to give us hope and to give us the means in which we can obey Him and live for Him. And so when you're reading with your children, you must help them see that's the point of Scripture. Because otherwise, you'll end up where you're at, uh, at least where many of us have been, where we have no idea, these, especially the 39 books in the Old Testament. Have you ever kind of been like, man, there's so many stories. I have no idea what's happening here. We're kind of here, and then we're here. It's not in chronological order. I have no idea who put this stuff together. I mean, that's what our kids are thinking, right? Like, you tell them to read it, and they're, they're lost pretty quick. And if they make it through Leviticus, that's grace, right? Because that's hard. And it's really hard when you don't understand. It's really one story. And it's really all pointing us towards Jesus. What we need to see is the cross of Jesus, is the climax of the Bible. And Jesus was not forced against his will to go to the cross. That's, that's the whole idea, is when those objectors say, well, this is, like, this is like cosmic divine child abuse to force the Son to come and die on behalf of these people. Well, it would be if Jesus was kicking and screaming the whole way. But what we see in Hebrews chapter 2, or chapter 12, verse 2, that Jesus joyfully went to the cross. Do you know that? It says, out of joy he goes. And in John chapter 10, verse 11, where we have one of the great I am statements, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And as the good shepherd, what does he do? He willingly lays down his life for the sheep. What we have to understand is that Jesus and the Father are perfectly working together. Jesus comes out of the love of God, God sends Jesus to demonstrate his love so that we would experience God's love and be transformed and saved so that we would then love like Christ. The cross is everything. When we come to the Bibles, it is everything about the cross of Jesus Christ. It's at the cross, and I kind of put just some statements in your your worship guide there. At the cross, Jesus defeated the rulers and powers of this world. At the cross, we're justified by the blood of Jesus. At the cross, Jesus took the curse that we deserve. At the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God so that we would have no condemnation against us. At the cross, we're given the Spirit of God. At the cross, we've been made spiritually alive. At the cross, we are saved by grace, not by works. At the cross, we've been adopted into the family of God. At the cross, we see that God is just and the justifier. It's because of the cross. God is able not to wipe our sins underneath the rug and ignore them, but the penalty has been paid for them. That is why God is just in justifying us. One 
One theologian said this, Christ is to us just what his cross is. All that Christ was in heaven or on earth was put into what he did there. Christ, I repeat, is to us just what his cross is. You do not understand Christ till you understand the cross. The cross is the single most important event in all of history. It's at the cross God becomes man and bears our penalty. And there's no other religion in which you see a God who creates all things, then on behalf of his creation suffers for them to save them. You don't see that anywhere. In fact, being in India, there is 33 million gods they worship. They worship them all out of fear. There's no love for them. In fact, majority of the gods are all angry. And so what they do and all their practices that they do, they're trying to appease the very anger of these gods. But the thing is, according to the Bible, you can't appease the wrath of God. How do we, finite mortal creatures, appease the infinite wrath of a holy God? We can't. Which is why there's hell. Which is why then Christ came. To stand on our behalf. To do what we cannot do. To do what no other pagan false god does. Becomes on behalf of his people. To die on the cross for them. This is why Paul. Paul throughout um, his letters will just boast about the cross. Galatians 6 he'll say. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In 1 Corinthians 1.18 he will say. The cross is the power of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 2 he will say. I declare to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in Philippians chapter 3 he says. Indeed I count everything at loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God from God that depends on faith. Paul continually boasts in the cross because it's at the cross God has come to pay for our sins. And this has been the determined plan of God before creation. We must know that. It's this gospel that people, that we and that people in all the world are proclaiming. And it's the gospel that people need to hear. It was neat while, I w- while we were in India. Um, at one point, uh, so we spent some down in time in Chennai, which is like the southeastern part of India. And then we went kind of into the middle part of India, which is uh, on the eastern side in a place called Vijawada which it's really fun to try to learn to say some of those names. And I am terrible at them. Uh, but we meet with, with, with ten pastors, and some of them had their wives there. Every single one of these pastors have been threatened and have been beaten for the gospel. Every single one of these pastors knew people who had been killed for the gospel. They all knew men and women uh, who had been persecuted, we heard stories of uh, people who had been killed, women who had been raped, children who had been killed. Uh, and then what would happen is after they would kill maybe the pastor or the wife or one of the children or rape one of them, the villagers would all gather around the pastor's house and they would say, if you don't leave, we'll do the very same thing to you. Um, and so one, one of them, the pastor, they killed. And so now the wife is there with her five children, now a widow, and they come and they surround the house and they say, leave or we will kill every single one of you. What do you think? What would you do at that moment? What would you do? And it's something that they have to actually wrestle with on a regular basis. And I'm sure that there would be people, maybe you're one of them, and would say, well, the responsible thing would be to keep your family safe. The responsible thing is you've you got to guard your family. But do you know what they do? They stay. And you know what they read? They read Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is calling there and saying, you must love me more than everyone else. And it's one thing when we read that here 
on the West where there's like no persecution other than maybe someone will make fun of us or say something, right? There's just not much that happens. But here, they're wrestling with it on a, okay, do I love Christ so much that I know that my child is at risk every day to be brutally killed? Or my wife? Or my husband? And so they remain in those places and they say, we have to, because who else is going to share the gospel? They know that God has saved them, that His Spirit is in them, persevering them and strengthening them for the sake of bringing light into the darkness. And that is what was amazing. That was one of the amazing things about being there is that they're standing there very much on the front lines of unreached peoples saying, these people need to know the gospel. They need to know that there's a God that we don't need to fear like their gods. That there's a God who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross so they don't need to sacrifice their sons. That there's a God who paid the penalty for our sins so we can be forgiven. And so out of love, we can come into a relationship with him and we can be saved and have a new life. And so they're there every single day. And this is the gospel. This is what they are proclaiming. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. And this is the gospel that we must proclaim. On a regular, daily basis. With our friends. With our family members. With our enemies. Because this is the light This is the truth that God has given us to come into this world that there would be hope. If we don't have this part of the creed, there's no hope. Do you realize that? Like if there's not a God who sends His Son to die and then rise, there's no hope. We are stuck in our sins. We're destined for wrath. The truth is there is a God who has done this. Who has come on our behalf. And now He's given you and I His Spirit So we would stand firm for Him, knowing this truth, shepherding our children in this truth, growing in this truth, shepherding one another, and proclaiming it to those around us in this world. So I want to encourage you. This is a privilege, it is an honor, and it is a right that we have to share the gospel with others. So that's one of the things that we see. We're not going to spend as much time in every point. Uh, The next point we have is the crucifixion, death, burial, and we can even add, and the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. And that's how Peter presents it here. Look at verse 22. Peter refers to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. Now, there's several times in the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as Jesus of Nazareth, like in Matthew 26, Luke 18, John 18. Now, why is that important? Why is it important that it's Jesus of Nazareth and not just Jesus? Because he didn't appear out of nowhere. He's not some mythical figure. He comes from a place. A place that they all know. A place that they can all verify. A place they can all travel to. A place that they can go meet people who knew this Jesus. And that's literally what Peter is doing here. Just as Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, remember he'll say, look, 500 of us saw Jesus rise from the grave. Go ask him. Go check if you don't believe us. Here he's saying, there's this Jesus. You want to know which Jesus? It's the Jesus of Nazareth. If you don't know him, you can go to Nazareth and you can find out where he was born, how he lived, and this is the Jesus that we're talking about. And it's in verse 23, we read that this Jesus was to put to death by lawless men. So who are these lawless men? Well, it's not the Jews. Peter's referring to the Romans. Particularly, uh, now, to Pontius Pilate, which he doesn't refer to here in this text, but if you looked at Acts chapter 3, verse 13, or Acts chapter 4, verse 27, there, when Peter is also giving other sermons, Peter specifically mentions Pontius Pilate, and I think in chapter 4, he mentions Herod. You see, the creed mentions Pilate, not because he's more guilty than the Jews or others, but that he was the primary historical figure at that time. Now, Peter's not letting the Jews off the hook. Notice, it says, you crucified and killed. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Jews. 
Those are the people who are around him. So he's letting them know, you guys are the one <coughs> who killed Jesus, and you did it through these lawless people, the Romans, led by Pontius Pilate. So when we pick up the Bible, we're picking up a book that reveals a God, that reveals God and the Savior Jesus Christ, and it reveals a God who's worked in actual historical settings. The Bible's not just a bunch of mythical stories kind of put together to entertain us, but it takes place in history, in real places, with real people, and real events. It's not necessarily a historical book in that it's meant to teach history, but it's a book that takes place within history and reveals how God has acted and done things within history. And so when we read the words Pontius Pilate in the Creed, we are affirming this gospel that took place 2,000 years ago at a certain historical and verifiable place and time. So that's what's happening. When we're reading that Pontius Pilate, you're going, well, why is it him? Because we're rooting the cross in a certain time in history. And we're, we're, we're showing that it's this Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth, that is the one who died on the cross and thus rose again. Next, we see the resurrection of Jesus proves he is the Son of God who rules forever. In verse 24, we see God raises Jesus from the dead. And it says, it was not possible for death to hold on to him. That's kind of a cool line, isn't it? Like, make sure when we're reading the Bible, we're not just going left to right, top to bottom, check the box, we're done. Like, we need to sit through some of these things. It's not possible for death to hold him. Death is a thing that you and I, we cannot escape. And yet, Jesus it wasn't able to hold him. In fact, we have the words, God was loosing the pangs of death, meaning that uh, he set Jesus free. He untied the very bonds of death. It was not able to hold Christ. Death is not strong enough to bind God. And so Peter, he's wanting to understand why death was unable to hold Jesus. And so he does that by he quoting, he quotes Psalm 16. And this is why, if you look at verse 25, it starts with, for David says, do you see that word for? So let's go to verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What's the question that we have? Why? Right? Why wasn't it possible? That's exactly for because, that, that's what he's going to explain. Well, let me tell you why it wasn't possible. And so, now, Psalm 16, it's written by David, but what we're going to see is it ultimately points forward to Jesus. And isn't that the point that we looked at in point number one? That everything in the Bible is ultimately moving towards Christ, who he is and what he did at the cross and the resurrection and how that applies to us. And so, in verse 27, we read, David, he's writing, You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And then in verse 29, Peter points out that David did die and his body did see corruption. It did decay. So how can David say that he will not see corruption when he did? And that's what, that's what Peter wants us to see. Why in verse 29 he says, um, With confidence we know David died and he was buried and notice it says in verse 29 um, and his tomb is with us today so so what's he getting at david died he died over there in that tomb where it's still sealed where if you go you only see bones and maybe just dust his body decayed so clearly this text is going to someone much greater than just David. And that's what Peter wants us to understand. In verses 30 through 31, Peter's going to explain David was actually acting as a prophet here, which is why he says in verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Now, what exactly 
did David know as he wrote this? That would be pretty interesting to understand. Like, how much did he understand that there's going to be one who comes after him? And how much did he understand that it's going to be Christ? But the Spirit working through David for um, writes this in him that David would understand there is one coming called a holy one, and this holy one will not see corruption. Meaning that he will not die, meaning that he will rule forever. And so Peter is wanting us to understand that this is Jesus. That the one who David is writing about, who will not see corruption, is ultimately the Messiah, the son of David, the greater king David, who will come and reign on the throne forever. And the problem in the Old Testament was that the kings kept dying, which is why David, his kingdom, went away. When he died, thus Solomon comes. And then when Solomon dies, his kingdom goes away. And thus the next one comes. And when you had a good king, it went well. But the bad thing is, good kings died. And then oftentimes there was a bad king who came. And so what we really need is a king who reigns forever. But we need a perfect king to do that. Because what we also see in the Old Testament is the king represents the people. When you had a good king, the, the people did good. When you had a wicked king, the people did wickedness, and they acted in evil. But even the good king, like King David, he wasn't perfect. Remember, he did a census at the end of his life, which cost 70,000 people their life. So no king is perfect, but what we need is a good king, one who can perfectly represent God's people and lead them in righteousness. So Peter's point here is that that is Jesus. He's come as the perfect and holy king, that he would eternally rule, that his reign will never end. And through his death and resurrection, he establishes a kingdom. Through his death and resurrection, he purchases a people who will live with him. Death cannot hold him because he's the son of God who's come to reign forever. That's what he wants us to understand here. But what does it mean in verse 21 by the word, or verse 31 by the word Hades? It says, um, He was not abandoned to Hades. Now this is what brings us to the question that I know many of you have had, where in the Apostles' Creed it says, Jesus descended into hell. So what does all that mean? When we read Jesus descended into hell, in fact, there was one person who, they were here, not here now, because we said this, and they said, well, I don't believe that. So I explained to them what it meant. And they still didn't want to believe it. And so they said, well, we're not coming back. So I was like, okay. But there is scripture that supports this. Um, You just have to understand what it's actually saying. And when you get into, uh, we'll we'll start simpler, sorry. Uh, So Hades is the Greek word for hell in the New Testament. Sheol is a Greek word for hell in the Old Testament. So when you see the word Hades and, and Sheol, that's what it's referring to. But these words do not refer to the lake of fire that we read in Revelation 20 uh, and 21, or 20. They do not refer to that. That's Gehenna. That is the, the eternal wrath of God that's going to be poured out upon unbelievers. That is not at all what this word refers to. It simply refers to the realm of the dead, which gets into really exciting kind of fun things if you have a little bit of extra time to get into, which my wife has advised me it's best not to get into here. I thought it would be, but because I've listened to her, we will not get into all those things. Um, But maybe we'll put up a a short document that just unpacks it. Because there's so much that the Old Testament, it talks about Hades. There's things that you learn in the New Testament that talks about Sheol. But, But primarily, what they're referring to is the realm of the dead. And in the 17th century, that's when the word began to change. Words often change over time. And that's where it began to change to the word hell as we understand it today, like lake of fire, which is why we have a problem with it today, right? Like you read, he descended into hell. Hold on, Jesus didn't go into hell. He paid for all of our sins at the cross, right? Yes. He did not then, he did not die on the cross, descend into hell, and pay extra penalty for anyone. He absorbed the entire wrath of God on the cross. So what does it mean then? That he descends into hell. What is Peter talking about here where he says that he was not abandoned to Hades? His flesh did not see corruption. What Peter's referring to is just the fact that Jesus died. And that he went into the grave. And that 
that he was not going to be abandoned, that he did not see corruption, but then he was going to rise again. That's the, the simple meaning that is just being given here. And in the creed, when it talks about he's descended into hell, the simple reference to it is that he's simply fully died. He went into the realm of the dead. He was not, Jesus did not come that he would simply prick a finger, drop his blood and say, I have atoned for the sins of the world. No, the atoning of the sins of the believers was only through his death and resurrection. Jesus had to die the death that we were supposed to die. So that's what's being referred to here. And so when we read that, he descended into, uh, into hell, it's referring to simply he's, he's gone into the realm of the dead. He fully, fully died. And so uh, what you'll often see when you come to the Apostles' Creed, you'll see an asterisk or a footnote, and it'll say the word death next to the word hell, uh, next to the word hell or it'll mention the word Hades. Um, and what one guy did, actually Brian McSwan, which many of you know, they actually read the, uh, the Apostles' Creed each week at their church, which is another NAB uh, church up in Bellingham. We went actually with them to India and Thailand. And they changed the word hell to the word death. And they just put a footnote on it. Uh, and they did that just to bring clarification because there's not enough people to always understand, well, the word has changed meanings. And uh, so in order just to make that a little simpler, they changed the word to simply death. And so from this point forward, that's what we're going to do also in the Apostles' Creed, is change the word from hell to death. So when we say it on Sunday morning, it'll say he descended into death instead of descended into hell. And we can do that because the Apostles' Creed is not Scripture, right? Like the Apostles' Creed is a man-made document that the people who have the Spirit in them wrote, but very different than what this is. We don't alter this word. But we can alter creeds and change certain things like that, although we need to be even careful with those, I would say. Um, but we'll do that to just to bring forth a little bit more clarification and to make that a little simpler as we go forward. Um, if you have more questions about Sheol and Hades, we can talk about that later, because that does get kind of fun. Um, but the point is, Jesus died and rose through his death and resurrection. He saves the people, and he establishes a kingdom, a kingdom that he reigns over forever, which is why he is the eternal king, and why he will lead us forever in righteousness, which is why our salvation is secure, which is why our salvation um, is eternal in Jesus. And so I hope you see, as we're going through like this creed, I hope you're beginning to see the importance of it. As we as we're walking through it, these are robust doctrinal statements. In fact, if someone was to come up to you and say, hey, what do you believe? What would you do? You would have to give some type of understanding of who God is and what he's done, right? Like you'd, you'd say that, and then you'd probably say, and the benefit of that, which is kind of the last part of the creed, as it talks about forgiveness of sins and, and, the, benefit, and the church and how we will live with him forever. You would give them something like the Apostles' Creed. That's why they wrote it. In the first century, they were asked the same question. What do you believe? We believe in all these gods. How is it that you only believe in one God? Well, let us tell you. We believe in this God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross, that we could be saved. So when we're coming to the Creed, we're looking at a summary of the Christian faith. It's a summary that we need to know because it's the same questions that we're asked today, right? What do you believe? How do you explain the truth to your children, to your, to your friends, to your family members, to those at work? And what we understand is there's no greater truth than what we're reading in this creed. And what's especially we looked at today through the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so how do we respond? Well, Peter tells us in verse 38, that's what the people ask too. What are we supposed to do after hearing this? And so Peter says, repent and be baptized. As Maureen was up here earlier, repentance is an act of faith, turning from our old lifestyle, living for ourselves, to now saying, you know what? Jesus is my king. My allegiance is now towards Jesus. I now live for him. I now live that he would be glorified in my life. And our baptism is a physical way to demonstrate our faith. 
Our baptism says that we're united to Jesus. Our baptism says that we've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Our baptism says that just as Jesus rose, so will we with him. And so I ask you, have you repented and been baptized? If you've not, we'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to talk to you about repentance. love to talk to you about baptism. That is, that is the question then that as we share the gospel, we should, we should push on people, not in a forceful way, but, but asking them, how are you going to respond? Will you believe in this Jesus? Don't just present the gospel and say, that's cool, isn't it? And then walk away. This is a gospel that demands a decision. And we don't want to force people, we don't want to push people in, but we should press on them and let them know that there is a time frame in this, and it is called our life. And if we have not believed in Jesus Christ, there is no purgatory. There is no second chances after this. Hebrews 9.27 says that every man is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. You'll either bear the judgment of God, or you'll enter into the presence of God because He bore the judgment for you. That is what we need to know. That is what we need to communicate to other people. And so I pray that you know that. I pray that you know those truths. Bring them to your children. Bring them to your friends and your co-workers. Pray that God would shine forth His grace and His glory upon them, that they would hear this truth and that they would know it. And I pray that we, that you and I, we would not fear man and be quiet. Because the reason we don't share the gospel, the reason we're, we're scared to at times is because more of a fear of man. Well, what are they going to say? What might they do? I don't want to make workplace uncomfortable. I don't want my neighbors to think I'm some weirdo. There's nothing more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And man, being reminded of it overseas it was so good. These people in India, they're literally going every day knowing that they could die for it. So that persecution, the blessing of it, it strips you away from the fear of man. It strips it from you. Now that's something we, we have a blessing here that the gospel, we're able to share it very safely in many ways here. Let's take advantage of that. Let's pray for that. Let's leverage what we have here in America and let's press on that so that more of our friends, more of our neighbors would hear the gospel. And I pray that if you're here today and you've not repented, you've not been baptized, then you would do so today. Repent. Come talk to me. Uh, come talk to Rich. We'd love to talk to you about baptism and repentance. We'd like to talk about membership. We'd like to talk about that. We're here today because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're united to other churches in Thurston County, where Ben is today, up at Olympic View, because of this gospel. There's no truth more important. So let's pray, and then we're going to take communion, which really then celebrates this gospel.